Well, good morning. Good morning. Great to see you. Those were some impressive fist bumps, by the way, during cold and flu season. I was flying back from some board meetings Friday night. I sit down on the airplane. The guy sits next to me, and I kid you not, he sits down. And the first thing he does is, ah, <laughs> and, and then he looks at me and goes, don't worry, I'm not sick. It's just sinuses. I, I spent the whole flight leaning against the window. So it no, it was a, actually, it was a good flight, and I, I, part of the reason I mention that is just to acknowledge, you know, for different reasons, we're not always able to be here on Sunday. Some of us are in and out for a variety of reasons. Just wanted to remind you that you can listen to the messages online when you're not here. In fact, uh, if you would like to subscribe to the podcast, you just go to hfcinfo.com, and you'll be given an option to do that through various streaming services. So if you'd like to do that, I just draw your attention to that. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to join with me in turning to Exodus chapter 5 in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 5. A few days ago, I had a conversation with a college student. He's not a follower of Christ, but he had some really good questions. So we had this great conversation, and I look forward to continuing the conversation with him. And at one point in our interaction, I just paused and thought for a moment and, and, and just thought, that was a great question you just asked. It was a powerful question he asked. In fact, if you're not a follower of Christ, I would say this is a great question to ask the people that you know who are Christians. Likewise, for those of us who are Christians, hey, this is a great question to ponder, to reflect on. And the question I'm talking about is this. In the course of our conversation, he he just said this. (laughs) Okay, George, why? Why Why do you believe in Christianity? Why, why do you take that seriously? Just, just tell me why. In a moment, I'll share part of my answer uh, with you in terms of that great conversation. But while that is, it's a great question today, it's a great, very relevant question for us in so many ways. Interestingly enough, that question is actually embedded in the pages of Scripture. That question is actually a question that is going to lead to one of the most significant moments in the storyline of the Bible, which is the exodus from Egypt of the nation of Israel. To show you what I mean, let's now come to Exodus chapter 5. If you're new this morning, hey, we're glad to have you. Thanks for being a part of our church this morning. We're in this series we're calling Love This Book. We're moving through the first half of the Old Testament of the Bible as we get to Easter and as we've been moving through, we, you know, we've seen the storyline of this guy named Abraham. God promises to bless him, be at work through his family. Eventually, his family ends up in Egypt. And generation after generation, they multiply. The, the nation of Israel becomes larger. And, and finally, after several centuries, it's reached a point where the nation is a threat to the Egyptians. I mean, Pharaoh looks around and realizes we've got this huge ethnic minority here that is a potential threat to us, we've got to take action. And so he does. He, he begins by, in essence, enslaving the Israelites, forcing them into labor to do the work of building and construction for uh, the nation of Egypt. And then he takes more drastic action in order to protect himself. He basically instructs uh, his people that the, the baby boys of the Israelites are to be killed. I mean, ultimately, it's an act of planned genocide. 
However, even as, as Pharaoh's plans are moving forward, God's plans and promises are, are moving forward as well. And as we saw last week, God calls this guy named Moses. And he said, hey, Moses, I'm going, to, I'm going to work through you. You are going to be the one who leads my people out of the nation of Egypt. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh. And initially he says, look, can, we want to go out in the wilderness and worship. So will you let us go? And notice how Pharaoh responds in Exodus chapter 5. Pharaoh said, who is this Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Now think about this from Pharaoh's perspective for a moment. I mean, if, you, if you'd grown up in Egypt at this time, you'd grown up with a belief system that argued that there were many gods. In fact, as we'll see in a moment, many gods associated with different dimensions of nature. Furthermore, furthermore, Pharaoh has grown up in an environment where, in essence, he's been told he is divine as well. I can only think that gets to your head after a while, don't you? And so now, given all these options, given all these diversity of views and beliefs in various gods, here's Moses who comes in talking about this other god. And Pharaoh's like, well... Who's this God that you were talking about? I mean, Moses wasn't necessarily a greatly impressive individual. Moses, look at you. Your God, really? Remember, by this time, it's been been 400 years since the time of Joseph. It's been 400 years since that moment when it felt like, you know, Israel was having a dramatic impact on Egypt's history. So for Pharaoh, I mean, what's the big deal of this other God? So who is he? And I think underlying that who question is is that why question that I was talking about a moment ago. In essence, Pharaoh was saying, okay, Moses, why? Why should I believe in your God? I've already got all these other gods. Why should I believe in your God? Why should I take you and your God seriously? It's a provocative question. And I think for some of you, maybe you, you you would... you would say, you know, I, I wrestle with the same kinds of questions. Why, why should I take this seriously? When I, when I have so many other options, when I have so many other ways in which I can prioritize my life, when I can, you know, so many other ways to make sense out of life and how life works, why should I take this seriously? Well, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's questions set the stage for this significant event, the Exodus. Now, leading up to the Exodus, this departure from Egypt, uh, we, we read about a series of interactions between Pharaoh and Moses. And these interactions lead to a series of signs. We sometimes refer to them as the plagues, right? Moses goes in, Pharaoh, you need to let us go out. And Pharaoh says, no. And so the Nile turns to blood. Moses goes back and says, you need to let us go. Pharaoh says, no. And then they're frogs. And then again, later, they're gnats and flies. And on it goes until we've gone through 10 plagues. Now, as you look at this, you might be prone to think that, you know, these plagues are just demonstrations of God's power, right? I mean, maybe you read this and it feels like this is one of those things where, you know, Pharaoh has said, okay, who is this God? Why should I take you seriously? And God's like, okay, I'll show you who you need to take seriously, right? I mean, let's be honest. 
haven't each of us at some point, haven't you found yourself in a life situation, maybe involving a teacher or a mentor or even a parent who's kind of looked at you and questioned your ability, questioned your skills, you know, a boss that really wasn't quite sure you were up for the job, and there was this little voice, you know that little voice that says, I'm going to show him. I'm going to show her. You know those situations? When Rose, my wife, and I were going through premarital counseling, at one point we took this personality inventory. And I kid you, we could not be more different in terms of personality. Like two ships just passing in the night, right? And, and so we were working with this pastor, and he, he brought this up, and he seemed really concerned about it. You know, you two are very different, and blah, blah, blah. And I kid you not, he looks at us, and he says this. He said, I would love for you guys to contact me in about a year. I would just like to know how you were going. And it felt like, man, it was so demotivating. Because here's, that's what he said. Here's what I heard. What I heard was, I'm not really sure you guys are going to make it. I want you to know, every year we send him a Christmas card. <laughs> he has been on our Christmas card, our family Christmas letter list, for 26 years. I also want you to know, we will never take him off the list. Right? Because I would, hey, here we are. We're still going. 26 years and counting. Right? I want you to know. And maybe you read the plagues and it feels a little bit like, you know, this is what God is doing. Okay, you're not going to believe in me? Well, I'm going to show you. I realize we can read them that way, but I actually think, I think there's more to the story than simply that. Among other things, I think we need to read these texts this way. We need to recognize that the plagues are an act of judgment against the gods of Egypt. For instance, this is, this is stated specifically when we get to Exodus 12, right? I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Uh, the, I don't think, th this isn't just a raw display of power. I think at some level, this is a manifestation of the truth that there really is only one true God. And it's not the gods of Egypt. In fact, scholars have noted that, that at least with most of the plagues, there seems to be some kind of correlation between the nature of the plague and a specific God that was worshipped in Egypt. So this is actually a chart prepared by a scholar named John Walton. And he notes that, you know, there, there seems to be some link between specific gods and, and the nature of the plagues. So that in different ways, these these plagues were acts of judgments, acts that revealed that there really was only one true God. For instance, in chapter 9 of Exodus, we read this, so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. So God is bringing judgment in such a way that it, it, it reveals, it unmasked the true nature of these supposed gods of Egypt. And I think as he does this, what, what is taking place through the, the plagues, the plagues are giving us an interesting picture of what happens when we pursue other gods. The plagues actually give us an interesting insight into what happens when we make other things ultimate. In fact, I would say this. One way to think about the plagues as you read Exodus 5 through 10 is to see this section of Scripture as a reversal of Genesis 1 and 2. And here's what I mean by that. Right, we go back, and remember this is where we started in this series. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, these creation accounts. 
And particularly in Genesis 1, we read this, you know, we read the, the account of God's creation. And as we go through that, what we see is we see order. We see intentionality. We see nature working together. We see harmony and symmetry in this world that God has created. And as a result, the the recurring verdict is, it was good, it was good, it was very good, right? That's what we see in creation. But now we get to these plagues, and we see nature turning against itself. Now we see things coming apart. In a real sense, through the plagues, the days of creation are, are being undone. Nature is giving way to chaos. I mean, think for a moment about how the plagues began. Right? Something happens to the Nile, the first plague, and the water becomes undrinkable, uninhabitable. It destroys the ecosystem of the Nile, and and this kind of sets up the next plague where, you know, undoubtedly with, with all this going on in the Nile, the frogs come out of the the marshlands and come out of the river and now the frogs are everywhere and they've taken over. They're in your homes. They're in your stuff. They're everywhere. You can see millions of frogs and that's the next plague. And then the frogs die. Now there are these decaying frogs all over the place. And that anticipates the next plagues of gnats and flies. This then leads to epidemics involving livestock and skin diseases, right? I mean, the plagues, there's a sense, I think, in which in some ways the plagues are building on one another. And it's, it's like nature is turning against itself. And all of this builds to the ninth plague, which involved darkness. Think about that. That's the, that's the exact opposite of where creation begins, right? We go back to the opening words of Genesis chapter 1, and we read that darkness was over the surface of the deep, and then God says, let there be light. Let there be light. Let there be order. Let there be symmetry. Let there be harmony. This is the world I'm creating. And yet now all of that is coming undone through the course of the plagues. And here's what I think we're seeing. This judgment against the gods of Egypt reveals something about human experience. You see, God God is the creator of the universe. And you and I, whether we realize it or not, we've been designed. I mean, we have his character imprinted on who we are. We've been designed to be in relationship with him. We've been designed to, to worship him. But when we move away from that design, when we pursue idolatry in any form, and I realize that's an ancient term, idolatry, but what it really means is taking anything else and making it ultimate in our lives. When we pursue that, it will over time foster chaos. When we pursue that in different ways, it will go against the grain of how God has designed the world in which we live. When we pursue that in some way, over time, it will contribute to the unraveling of the goodness of God's creation. For instance, maybe I'm someone who who really what has become ultimate for me is my reputation, how other people perceive me. I I want to be respected. I want to be looked up to, I want to have that kind of reputation, and that's really what I want more than anything, to prove myself to others, to be recognized by others. And I may not realize it, but you know, over time, what 
what that approach to life does in different ways, it just, it fosters the unraveling of the goodness of God's creation. Let me just give you several examples. First of all, it can contribute to superficiality in relationships. Because you know what? If, if, if I'm all about impressing you, or I'm always making sure I'm looking good to other people. At times, it's going to be hard to really grow in relationships because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hiding behind an image that I want to project, and I'm only going to let you get so close. There's a superficiality there, and that superficiality will govern my interactions. It will govern my conversations. It will govern how I present myself on social media, right? It governs all those things, but it, but it creates distance in relationships. Furthermore, it can even create pressure in relationships, For instance, if I'm a parent, in in maybe direct and even indirect ways, I can can put pressure on my kids because I want to look good because of you. In fact, tragically, sometimes you see this, it almost feels like parents are more concerned about how their kids are making them look than what's actually going on in their kids' lives. I mean, that creates this unnecessary pressure in these relationships. It's the unraveling of the goodness of of, of God's creation. Furthermore, it can create isolation because what happens when life gets complicated? What happens when I really hit a point when I I need the support of other people, I need the input, the insight from other people? Well, if I'm really living to be well-known, I can become hesitant in seeking out that support and help because I just, I don't want you to know the truth. Recently, my wife was in a conversation with some longtime family friends that live in a different part of the country. Then there's, there's now some, you know, they're going through some family stuff. And, and Rose was talking about how to work through that. And at one point, our friend said, well, what will other people think? And my wife was like, you know what, that's the last thing you need to ask. That is the last place you need to go. Because when you start asking that question, you will get stuck. When you start asking that question, you're not going to seek the help, the support, the encouragement you need from other people. Do not go there. That's an isolating question. It's an example of what happens when, when, when that sense of reputation becomes absolute and ultimate. It's a form of idolatry. And in some ways, it, it contributes to the unraveling of the goodness in God's creation and his design. So in the plagues, we see see God exercising judgment. We see God exercising judgment against the gods of Egypt. We see, I think in the same way, as he exercises judgment, he is revealing his character. He is revealing his uniqueness. He is revealing his holiness. The reality that he is the only true God. And all of this builds plague by plague until we get to the 10th plague. And the 10th plague entails the death of the firstborn son. Now, I know many of us, you know, we've known these, we've known these stories since we were very young. But I think if we're honest, when we get to this part of the story, there, isn't there a heaviness here? Isn't there a weightiness? I mean, all you have to do is just envision what it was like in Egypt the day after this took place. All you have to do is just begin to envision what what was it like walking through, you know, a small Egyptian village 
early in the morning. You know, just almost absolute silence. Maybe just animals and livestock you could hear. But as you walk through, really the only other thing you could hear was wailing. And home after home, wailing because of the arrival of death. So I, I think we need to be honest that, you know, this, this makes us uncomfortable. This text is challenging. It's hard. It's hard to read. And yet, I don't think we, we deny that. I don't think we kind of try to get away from it. Because in the heaviness of this text, we're being confronted with the holiness of God. With the reality of his judgment on sin, on disobedience, on wickedness and evil. Yet even, I think, as, even as we see God's holiness here, we also see his mercy and love. The, these different attributes are, are working in harmony because at this very moment we also see that his rescue plan is taking on a new and defining moment. Because here we are introduced to Passover. Right as this plague was about to take place, the Israelites were given this instruction, you're going to need to take a lamb and sacrifice that lamb. And once you've made this animal sacrifice, you're going to take the blood from that animal and you're, you're going to put it on the doorframe, on all the sides of the doorframe around your home. And when God comes through the land in judgment and justice and he sees the blood on your doorframe, he will pass over your home and you, and you will be spared. Interestingly, even, even as this is going on, I mean, this is fascinating to me, even as this is going on, and right, and if you, as you read through this section of scripture, it's, it, you feel the rising tension, right? Interaction after interaction between Moses and Pharaoh, the stakes are being raised until we get to this final plague that will ultimately entail human death. The tension is building, the conflict is building until we get to this moment. God's got a rescue plan that he's now putting in place. And in the midst of all of this tension, God actually takes time to say this. And by the way, uh, this meal that you're going to celebrate, it's going to become an annual meal of remembrance. This will become an annual part of your national calendar. In fact, you are going to structure your national calendar around the remembrance of this event. Now, I find that fascinating that this is, this is embedded in the text right here. It's like, hey, we've got all this going on. Now's not the time for us to worry about the calendar in the future. But from the very beginning, as Israel is given instructions about Passover, they are also told this will become an annual time of remembrance for you. I'm going to ask you every year to remember this, to recreate this, to look back on this. Every year, generation after generation, I want to bring you back to this moment. Now, why was that the case? Why would God want to do that? I think the answer is this event was so significant because this event encapsulates, it summarizes God's plan of restoration, of renewal, of redemption, of salvation. This becomes the model. So this will be a moment that you are to remember, that you are to come back to year after year. 
And as you, as you look at this passage and the description of Passover, let me just highlight the dimensions of salvation that we see in the Passover event. On the one hand, when you look carefully at Passover, Passover was deliverance. It was salvation from certain things. Specifically, it was salvation from oppression, and it was also salvation or deliverance from God's judgment. Now, remember, that for, for some length of time, the Israelites had, had been engaged in forced labor. They had been basically enslaved by the Egyptians. They had experienced oppression. For some time, the, you know, the day after day routine for these people had been, you get up, you make bricks, you do hard labor, you go to bed. <laughs> Next day, you get up, you make bricks, you do hard labor, you go to bed. So that had been the routine. And so God in, in this event is now going to deliver uh, the people of Israel from that bondage, from that oppression. But this deliverance, it wasn't simply from kind of the oppression of the Egyptians. It was also deliverance from God's judgment. Now, I'm not sure if this actually happened, but I do wonder. I do wonder if there were any Israelites who actually had questions about why they had to make a sacrifice. I mean, once again, put yourself in this situation. So here you are for how long, we don't know, but for some season of time, you've been forced to do the work of Egyptian building, Egyptian construction. You've, in essence, been in a forced labor camp. Furthermore, most likely, you have not simply experienced the oppression of the Egyptians. You've experienced the horror of losing a son at their hands. Who knows how people were feeling? Just, uh, you know, I can only think there was some level of anger, frustration, desire for vengeance. And so now the people are being told that God is going to exercise his judgment. Some of whom are saying, well, it's about time. Go get them. You just take them out. But then they're told, and by the way, you need to make a sacrifice. And I wonder if some of the Israelites didn't go, well, why isn't this, this like the plague of hail, right? When you go back to the, the hail, we're told that, well, hail came down on the land of Egypt, but it bypassed the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. Why can't, why can't God's, you know, acts of judgment simply bypass our area and just go right to the Egyptians? Because they're the people that have oppressed us. They're the people that have committed, you know, genocide. They're the people worthy of God's justice and judgment. In fact, when you tell me that I have to make a sacrifice, what you are in some sense telling me is there is something in my life that needs to be addressed. I think that's part of the message the Israelites needed to hear. It was so easy for them just to say, well, they're the problem. Look at what they've done. Look at how they treated us. Look at how they've killed all of our kids. And in pointing the finger to miss out their own need be delivered from the judgment that comes on sin and brokenness. So the Passover event, is, it's, it's an act of deliverance from oppression and from God's judgment. But it wasn't simply an act of being brought out. There wasn't simply a from peace. There was also a for peace. And I think in the, these texts, 
that describe this event, we see that, that this deliverance, this salvation was to be for relationship, for our relationship with God and also for mission, that they were to be part of God's mission. When you go back to chapter 6, God promises this as he's describing to Moses what's about to happen. He says, I'm going to take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Moses, I am doing this because I desire to be in relationship with you. You will be my people. I will be your God. And when we read these words, it takes us right back into a big theme that, that we're seeing throughout our journey through the Old Testament, a theme that in so many ways helps bring unity to the Bible, the theme that God desires to be with us. That's woven into the Exodus story. I'm going to be your God. I am doing this because I am in pursuit of you as my people. But it's not simply I'm doing this to, to bring you into relationship with me. I'm also doing this to bring you into the bigger mission of what I'm doing. In different ways, as you read the Exodus account, you will see echoes of promises that were made to Abraham. Primarily, you'll see echoes of the promise, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land as an inheritance. I'm going to give your nation, your people, this land uh, to be your national home. And of course, closely related to that promise of land and an inheritance was the promise that, and as you take hold of this land, I'm going to be at work in you so that I am going to bless the world through you. It's interesting, you know, as you read the instructions given concerning Passover, one of the odd things that is said is you are to eat this meal in haste, right? I know all of us who are parents, at some point, we've had to tell our kids, slow down, right? Slow down what you're eating. But the people are told, you you have to eat this in haste. You have to gobble it down. Why? Because you're headed out. You, You are part of a bigger mission. You are part of a bigger story. So this theme of being a part of what God is doing is woven into the Exodus account. It was a salvation from and a salvation for. And after the Exodus, year after year, we were to come back to this. It was to be an annual observance, to remind us of what God had done, to to recalibrate our hearts and minds. This is what God is doing in his good creation. And it's interesting, over time, over time, as you continue to read the Old Testament, a new theme developed, a new theme that you find in, in various points in the Old Testament prophets, the theme that perhaps someday God is going to do a new exodus. He's going to do this, but in a a new and deeper way. What could that look like? Could that be the case? And so these questions and and even the sense of promise and anticipation just hangs over much of the Old Testament, somewhat unanswered. And then we get to the New Testament, and we get to the story of Jesus. And in different ways, as you read the accounts of Jesus' life, the gospel writers start to link the life of Jesus to the Old Testament Exodus. And then we get to the final time that Jesus observes Passover with his disciples. And in that that meal, Jesus takes these elements that were linked with the observance of Passover, that were linked with the Passover lamb, and he takes these elements and he now directs them toward himself. Right? This is my body. It's broken for you. This is my blood. It's shed for you. 
And in that kind of language, Jesus was saying this. I, I'm the ultimate Passover lamb. I, I am the one who is bringing about the final chapter of God's salvation and deliverance. I am the one who has come, right, to save you from. I've, I've come to save you from the oppressive reality of sin and how it can take hold in your life. How it can imprison you. You know, tragically so often people think of Christianity as being limiting or it boxes you in. You have to fit a certain paradigm. And unfortunately, maybe in some churches that's the message that communicates. But in the pages of Scripture, the work of Christ is communicated as liberation. I'm the one who comes to give you your life back as God intended and designed. I'm the one who comes to bring you out from the bondage of sin. But also, I'm the one who who delivers you from the judgment that rests over your life because of your sin and brokenness. I'm taking that on myself. But but not only has he come simply to, to save us from, he's also saved us for. I'm the one who comes to give you my spirit to be at work in your life so you're never alone. I'm the one who comes to bring you back into relationship with me. And I'm the one who, who in bringing you back into relationships with me, now gives you a deeper sense of purpose, identity, and mission. You're now part of what I'm doing. You're now rooted in who I am. And as that sinks into who you are, it will totally transform your life. I started by talking to you about the, this conversation I had with this college student who was actually asking these great questions. And when he asked the why question, part of my answer was this. You know, George, why do you take Christianity seriously? And why are you a follower of Christ? And part of what I said was this. Well, you need to know that, that for me, Christianity just does the best job of explaining reality. I mean, Christianity, I come to understand the reasoning for the brokenness, the imperfection that I see in my own life and the lives of other people. The brokenness that at times I see in families, in culture, in government. All those things that we sometimes joke about or things that make us cynical. I see the reality of that. I see the reality of the unraveling of God's goodness of creation when other things become supreme in our lives. But that doesn't drive me to a point of cynicism or desperation because through Christianity, I also see that God has a rescue plan underway, a restorative plan to bring me back to my creative design, to give me my life back, to bring me into relationship with him, to bring me into relationship with his community that he is creating, and to empower me now to live out this God-given identity that is rooted in my life since before the beginning of time. Gives me a sense of purpose, of meaning, of direction. I said, you know, for me, Christianity just it just explains the reality of the way things are and the way God is actually at work in the world. As we think about that, we're now going to come to a time of communion. A time to be reminded of the truth of the reality of what God is doing. 
For some of you, maybe you're here this morning and, and you have yet to start this journey of following Christ. And I hope you, you understand that as we've been talking about the Exodus story, it's not just a story that occurs, you know, hundreds and thousands of years ago, but it is, it's a story of what God is doing and even doing today. And it's a story that invites you in to experience this deliverance from and this deliverance for. And it's a story that you become a part of if you, as you put your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ. We'd love to talk to you about what that looks like. Even after this service, we're going to have members of our prayer team up front available to pray with you. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, I just invite you to allow this moment to just be, just to be a moment to recalibrate your thinking, to bring you back to the truth of this reality of what God is doing through Jesus Christ that, that is anticipated in the Exodus and Passover, that, that you are being saved from and you're being saved for. So I'm going to lead us in prayer. Then I'm going to invite you to come to one of the stations. We've got stations in the back, stations up front, and take the bread and the cup, and uh, and just take it back to your seat as we sing, and then in a moment I'll come back, and we will observe this together. So pray with me. So gracious God, as we looked back to this significant moment in the Old Testament, the story of the Exodus and Passover, I pray we would see this not simply as something that happened in the far distant past, but it's something that reveals the nature of what you are doing, that you are doing through the work of Jesus Christ. And I pray that even as we gather around this table, we will be reminded of that truth, reminded of the reality. And may we just celebrate that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So now I invite you to come to the table. Thank you.